Romans 15, Paul has just been finishing up this section where he's addressing strong and weak or mature and immature believers in Christ. Again, every body of Christ is going to have those that are stronger in the faith, more mature in their faith, and those that are less mature in their faith, maybe new believers, maybe coming out of various things. And he has been encouraging them in how to relate to one another, uh, both in those strong believers not despising the weaker believers in Christ and the weaker believers in Christ not judging those that are stronger in their faith for things that they don't fully understand, and then encouraging each to recognize that we're all going to give an account to the actual Lord one day, who is Jesus Christ, and that we can give each other a little bit of space, and then particularly finishes up kind of speaking, I I think, more directly to those stronger believers to say we need to be careful in how we deal with the consciences of other folks because we can be right about something and still not walking in love. I can be theologically correct, but yet still not Christ-like, which was kind of the whole Pharisee's problem. So um, he is now going to continue that argument, obviously no break where we stopped at the end of 14, and he is going to conclude this kind of exhortation to strong and weak believers with the example of Christ himself. Um, Being a capstone really to the teaching section of the book, um, and particularly, I think, from everything that he started from 12.1 on. So let's read verse 1. We then who are strong, Paul includes himself in this, ought to bear with the scruples or the weaknesses, the infirmities of the weak, and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. So here, Paul says to the strong, particularly verse 1, to the weak, I think they're referenced in verse 2, that in all of our interaction, it should be for edification. And most directly, that for everyone, Christ becomes the example. And Christ is the ultimate example of a person who had the most strength, yet did not live to please himself. And the example that we're supposed to take and to see, certainly the perfect life was one that was lived not only just doing what is right for oneself, which is kind of the big American message, but doing what is right before God and for others. So, We who are strong, again, ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. If if God has given you strength in your Christian life, if he's given you maturity, if he's given you a place to actually help other people, to encourage them and to build them up, and really that's, uh, I think, on, on some level, proportional to all of us. Like There's always another believer out there who's more mature than we are. And there's always another believer out there who's less mature than we are. So maybe you're, you're the weak believer in one scenario and the stronger believer in another scenario. Um, but for all of us, 
particularly when we find ourselves in that place where I realize I'm a more mature believer. It doesn't have to be prideful. Paul, Paul includes himself. He realizes as an apostle, he is more mature in the faith than some of these new believers are. And he can recognize that and now understand, I have a responsibility. What do I do with my strength? Why did God give me strength in the faith? Why, did, why am I in a position where I can be mature in the faith and there's other people in my life who are not? I am supposed to meet them as they are, not just as they should be or I might want them to be. I'm supposed to meet people in reality, where they actually are. And when I do that, it won't be to make myself happy. It will be to please the Lord and do what is edifying in their life. It is a great blessing to have a strong believer in Christ in your life. Uh, again, Pilgrim's Progress in the second half of the book is about uh, his wife, Christiana, traveling to the celestial city. One of the characters in the book is a man named Great Heart. That's a great character. And Great Heart has strength, and he essentially helps this lady and these children and a group of other weak people on their path to heaven. And those weak people don't really change. He uses various names for them. One of them is feeble mind with the idea of somebody who's, whose mind is always a place of struggle for them. One is ready to halt, who has uh, another character, Mr. Despondency. There's, there's, there's these characters that along the way, they have these various weaknesses where really they wouldn't have made it on their own. And Greatheart becomes a person for them that helps them along the way. It's God's provision for them in some ways. And there's always people in our lives that God has there not so that we get annoyed at them, but so that our strength helps them. And it's a pretty huge deal to have a great heart in your family, in your workplace, certainly the faithful people that serve in a church where you're at. We see what happens when there's unfaithfulness there. To, to have a person who has strength in Christ, but they don't just take that strength and then please themselves with it. They use it for those who need help. They realize, I didn't have this strength just for me. I have this strength to minister to others who need it along the way. And a much afraid or a ready to halt or a Mr. Despondency doesn't quite make it without that help. And God has called us, if we see ourselves as mature in Christ, to that example. It is the example that Paul found for himself. 1 Corinthians 10, he'll say this, Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. Imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. Maybe you know the last part of that verse, but the context is the same of what Paul, is what Paul is saying here. 
Christ becomes our example in strong selflessness, a life not lived just to please itself. The, the, again, Pharisees became strictly theologically correct, yet they so ordered their own religious lives to please themselves all the time, not actually to edify and to help those who were weak. And it became a constant place of conflict between them and Jesus Christ. Now, certainly, it is a possibility that we learn to please people the wrong way. So I think it's important, how is Christ doing this? I think Paul wants to build on that. That's part of why he puts in verse 2. Let us please his neighbor for his good. Again, what God would consider good. Leading to edification to a building up of them in Jesus Christ. If God, if God has given you strength or a gift or an authority, it's to edify. It's to build up. That doesn't mean there's not reproof. Jesus reproved his disciples. But, but his goal was always the edification of others. And he was willing to take on difficulty for that, as he says in verse 3, for even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. He's quoting from Psalm 69 there. It's one of the most quoted psalms in the New Testament. It's clearly a messianic psalm. And what it's saying is the reproaches that Christ dealt with on our behalf came to him all while doing his father's will. He was, he was seeking to please his father, and all the difficulties he found in that were to benefit others. He, it wasn't for him. And all those reproaches he dealt with, we, we follow his example. Thankfully, we deal with the reproaches of men. He dealt with the wrath of God. I don't carry what he carries. We don't deal with anything like he dealt with for us. He always leads the way. We follow him. Whatever hardship we find here in life, and we might find real ones, they're still not what he found on our behalf. And that's why we continue to follow him. And we lend our strength to him. But his goal was pleasing his father. Uh, Campbell Morgan in his commentary on Romans says, Instead of pleasing himself, he devoted himself to please his neighbors. He did this, however, by pleasing God and setting himself to bring men to that same level of life. He did not please his neighbors by accommodating his conduct to false ideals of life, but by setting himself, in spite of opposition and misunderstanding, to bring them to the true ideal. The world wants us to please them by giving them what they want in false ideals of life. Jesus did what he had to do to bring people to the truth. And he found difficulty in that. And he knew he was going to find difficulty in that. But he chose to do it anyway, to display his strength that way. There was a life lived on the face of the earth that was both terrible and beautiful, awful in its selflessness. For the Son of God to leave heaven for earth, to enter the world the way that he did, 
To live in relative obscurity in a town that certainly was not popular for 30 years of his life, like any other person, as the son of God, getting up in the morning, going to bed at night, doing normal work. Unknown, regular in a family. Then entering into that ministry where he's constantly faced with the sin of other people, the literal opposition of the devil, walking, the, being the son of God and being invited into a Pharisee's house, and you know you're going to be treated harshly ahead of time. They're not even going to give you the common respect you deserve, but you do it because you're going to point them to the love of God. The creator bleeding on the ground he made because of the pressure of sin and the cup of God's wrath. It's an incredible life. It's divine. Nobody has lived a selfless life like that. Only him. The more you look at it, the more beautiful it is, the more strength you actually see there. If you're anything like me, you begin to realize, like, God, I can't even like, take out the trash selflessly let alone what you went through. I can't get rid of myself. That's my problem. But what he did is remarkable. He did set an example, certainly. He did it as the son of man. He stayed in communion with his father, rose up early to pray, was out there at night in the mountain seeking his father. He remained in God's word, didn't allow daily interruptions to throw him off his purpose or task. Just saw his father's will, surrendered, and all those things. Certainly there are things I think we can take. He said eventually, He who sent me is with me. The father has not left me alone, for I do always those things that please him. That's how he did it. And you and I are supposed to take that example if we're strong, that's what our life will be. Won't just be a theological understanding that we possess that's greater than other folks. It will be a selflessness that pleases first the Heavenly Father and then those around them for their benefit. A strength that's poured out on behalf of others. It is the ultimate example. That's why Paul puts it here. And he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. I'm, I'm just trying to follow him too. This is what he laid down for us. If you think you're strong, then you ought not to please yourself. For Christ, he didn't live to please himself. He went through all those reproaches for us. Could have escaped them. Could have, could have stayed out of them. Didn't have to deal with any of that stuff. But in his strength and in his love and in his selflessness, he did it for us, for you and for me. So uh, if you look at yourself, you will become despondent because none of us can do that. But if you want this, you can look to him because he has that type of life. And he offers it to us. And Paul is encouraging men to aim for this. We're all going to fall short in some degree, certainly. 
But I think to know what that maturity really looks like and to have the great aim for it, that's what Paul wants here. Because the other side of the question is simply, if we're not doing this, what are we doing? If my life is not first to please God and then to give that strength or whatever he would give me in the benefit of others as he did, Jesus did, then all I'm left with is pleasing myself. That's it. Even if it's a Christian type of life, even if I don't do something overtly unchristian, even if I'm not drunk or taking drugs or cursing people out or whatever, it doesn't mean now I'm living a selfless life. I could still totally live for myself. I could be a, a very moral, civil person who just lives for myself all day. The priority is still me. I'm still number one in the equation. So the, the picture here that he's putting forward is following the person who said, if any man wants to follow me, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. That was what he was doing. That was the path that he walked on. And you and I are called to the same thing. If not, what we're left with is just ourselves. Paul would say in Galatians 1.10, For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I still please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. So what am I doing? Am I seeking to please God or am I seeking to please people? If I'm seeking to please God, that's one thing. But if I seek to please men, then I'm no longer a bond slave of Christ. I, I can't do both because one must have the priority. There will always be a conflict eventually. And when that conflict comes, then it becomes a choice. And who am I choosing? And the example of Christ was, I do always those things that please him. And Paul wants these believers to understand in all their interactions with one another, mature, immature, Christ is the ultimate example of what we're aiming for. He's the one who lived that life totally selflessly for us. And he wants to extend that same life. Again, we have his spirit working in us. That's the type of life his spirit will be developing in us. And we should, however we're interacting with one another, be able to look and say, is this for my neighbor's good, for their edification? Because in all those things, those things can be true. There can still be correction. There can still be reproof. There can still be exhortation. There can still be discipline. Jesus had all those things. But... It was always for their good and for their edification. He was willing to go through so much even just to correct someone or to bring truth into somebody's life. Sometimes it takes more love to look at somebody and tell them the truth than it does to just make life easy or do actually what is best for them. When somebody's willing to look at you in the face and tell you you got something in your teeth or like in your nose or something. That's because they love you, actually. Any stranger would just ignore that and let you roll and not care what happens to you or anybody else that's disturbed by it through the rest of the day. 
Use the sometimes not just being nice isn't always the greatest expression of love. It's doing what is best for people, what is for their good and their edification. And Paul wants us to filter through that and see Christ as the ultimate picture of that. Now, he says in verse 4, for whatever things were written before, certainly I think in reference to what he quoted from the psalm, were written for our learning, that we, through the patience and comfort of scriptures, might have hope. Paul wants these believers to, through the patience or perseverance there, and comfort of scriptures, have hope. He wants them to persevere in the word of God. Stay in it. Everything that's written there is for your learning. And when you do that, you will find comfort and hope through those scriptures because they are a living message for us. Like Jesus was followed literally. The disciples wanted to know what God's word was. They literally stick with Jesus Christ, walk around, follow with him. Sometimes it was difficult. Sometimes they literally say, this is a hard saying. But where else are we going to go? You're the one who has the words of eternal life. They literally had to follow him around. We as believers no longer do that. We can't look at his back. But we can remain in his word, in his teaching, allow it to continue to speak to us, to wash over us, to work in our hearts, to work in our minds. And we persevere pouring those scriptures into our lives, and that's where we find the comfort and the hope that God would have for us. He teaches us, notice it says, these things were written for our learning. Who is the teacher? Well, the teacher is the Holy Spirit, who teaches us the things that he has put down. They were beforehand written for our learning. God wrote the message Through holy men, the Bible tells us that, who certainly were writing a message for their own day. But as God was inspiring the scriptures, he also knew this is for believers. As he's inspiring Paul to write these things down, he knows a couple thousand years later, Calvary Chapel of Philadelphia will be reading Romans chapter 15. These things are going to be for believers through the ages. And into eternity, the word of God's not going to fade. Uh, one author, I like how he said it. He said, we see David in history. As David was writing that psalm, it had a historic background. But we see Christ in the mystery. We see David in the history and Christ in the mystery. These men were writing things that they had real messages and real meanings. But there were things that went beyond they understood even what we're saying here, there's, there's something wider to this. And they didn't always see the whole message. And Paul says, everything in the word of God is for our learning. Maybe you're reading through the Bible and you're in a place and you're like, I don't know what this means. It's cool. File it away. Right? Save it. At some point in your life, that could be for your learning. Just continue to persevere in it. And God will build in you comfort and hope through the scriptures. It's all there on purpose. He wants to be our teacher through these things. Now, this is Paul's kind of heart and prayer for these believers. Verse 5. May the God of patience and of comfort, 
grant you to be like-minded toward one another, according to Christ Jesus, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul wants these weak and strong believers in Rome to find unity in Christ's example. He wants them to be of one mind and of one heart in glorifying God. That's what he wants them to be unified in. It doesn't mean that we don't care about doctrine. There's a lot of pressure out there again in the world right now for Christians to be unified. And they're willing to just drop belief in anything so that we can hang out together until nobody believes anything at all. And it's just a social club. Paul, in the next chapter, is going to say, I urge you, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned and avoid them. So he's, he's not just saying ignore doctrine here. What he's saying is he's assuming these believers know the right things and you should have the same goal. If your same goal is to please Jesus Christ, to glorify God, to persevere in his word, you can then be of one heart and of one mind. And most of us have somebody that we know that is maybe, maybe might have a little doctrinal difference here or there, but they're a believer. We love the Lord together. We can be of one heart and of one mind in those things, the central things of Christ. And Paul wants this church to be that way. If we're tuned to him in the end, we will be tuned to one another. A.W. Tozer gives an example, and he says, if you line up 100 pianos and tune the first one to the second one, and then the second one to the third one, and the third one, by the end, you're going to be off tune. But if you tune them all to the same tuning fork, they'll all be tuned to one another. And what Paul is saying here is, is that same thing. Get, get tuned to Jesus, and you'll be cool with everybody else. If, if, if your aim is his pleasure and his glory, you'll, you'll have one heart and one mind with other believers in Christ. If pride comes in, if some sinful thing comes in, if we become first, oh, then you have conflict. But he wants them to be of one heart and of one mind, like-minded to one another, according to Christ Jesus, that they can, with one mind, one mouth, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Part of the beauty of worship, right? We should essentially have one mouth, we're all singing the same song, saying the same thing, expressing the same heart toward him. Paul wants this to be part of the fruit in their lives. Now, <clears throat> verse 7, he says, Therefore receive one another, just as Christ also received us to the glory of God. This kind of takes us all the way back to 14.1, where he's talking about them receiving one another even despite those being strong or weak and some of the things that they might argue over, like food or days they would worship. Again, <clears throat> he wants them to be received in the body of Christ as his sons and daughters because he has received us. If Christ has already received them to the glory of God, then how could they not receive one another? The whole Jew-Gentile thing, he's saying, God saved you, Jesus Christ lived this incredible life of selflessness, carried our reproaches for us, took our sins for us. Look at that example so that God could receive us 
and now we're going to reject one another? Again, there's, you know, there's denominational lines that are drawn, and there's differences of opinion. And in some ways, those are fine. It's good that we know what one another believes. And we might not baptize babies here, but there are people who are born again that baptize babies. And they can be received as a brother or sister of Christ while you still say, I don't think we should baptize babies, though. Where some, at some times in church history, believers would just kill each other over that. That's not what he's talking about here. There's, there's a place where some of these things, again, the day they might worship on, who was eating what, they became not just a belief that we hold or we, we sincerely believe this is the best way to serve the Lord. We hope other believers see that. It was literally the, the deciding factor in fellowship. Oh, you do this thing, we can't fellowship with you at all. You eat this food, we can't fellowship with you at all. You worship on this day, we can't fellowship with you at all. And that's what Paul's working about. He's saying, no, no, no. You need to receive one another as Christ received you. And some of these people, they had really weird beliefs. They're coming at strange things, and God was going to work them through those things. And he wants this, this body here that we know is a mix of both Jews and Gentiles, as it was becoming all around the world, to be of one heart again, one mind, one mouth, glorifying God, seeking to please him by pleasing one another, and receiving one another as Christ also received us to the glory of God. Now, he's going to, again, build on that. Uh, verse 8, I say that Jesus Christ has become a servant to the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made to the fathers and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy as it is written, for this reason I will confess you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, he says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Laud him, all you peoples. And again, Isaiah says, there shall be a root of Jesse, and he who shall rise to reign over the Gentiles, in him the Gentiles shall hope. So Paul here begins in terms of, again, receiving one another. He's making the point that Jesus Christ was a servant of God toward the Jews and Gentiles, just as the Old Testament prophesied. To the Jews, he was a servant. He came to the Jews first, first to the house of Israel. He confirmed the promises that God had set up in the Old Testament. He fulfilled the prophecies of the Messiah. And the Jews had this kind of backing while the Gentiles did not. They didn't have the word of God and the oracles of God in the same way. Paul already went through that. And he said, but he showed mercy to them as he did even in his ministry just like the Old Testament said. And then what Paul does is he gives here these four quotes. They are from the Old Testament, but they're from the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. He's pulling one kind of out of every section. And he gives them to prove his point that God had always said he would receive these Jews and Gentiles into one body, this new thing that Paul was supposed to teach and show, that this would be part of the Messiah's job, and that then they should receive one another in the same way. So any Jew who read that would have to understand, okay, yeah, the scriptures say God had a plan to have mercy on the Gentiles. 
He, he said it pretty clearly. There's certainly a bit of a progression there. In the first quote, you see, for this reason, I will confess you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. That's the Gentiles hear about Christ. Then he says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. Now they're joining with the people of God in praising the Lord. Verse 11, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, laud him, all you peoples. Now they're independently praising him without his people, the Israelites. And then in 12, we see the Gentiles putting hope in the Messiah. And he builds all the way down to this point where he says then 13, now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing Certainly the scripture, what has been written beforehand for their learning, that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And he's building off of that last verse there, the quote from Isaiah, where prophetically the Gentiles would hope in him. And now Paul's seeing it happen. He's literally saying, I want you to have Hope as an answer to this prophetic reality. God is literally building this in your lives. And if you're here tonight and the hope you have in life is because of Jesus Christ, you are prophetically a part of the fulfillment of this. Because there's only one God of hope. And there's nowhere else you can find any real hope in all the world. You can find hopes and dreams, there's lots of talk about that, especially around education and award ceremonies. But none of those hopes and dreams are actually true and come true in the end outside of Jesus Christ. The only hope there is for the world, the only hope there is for literally the earth, for human society, and for each of us as individuals, is the hope that's found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's no hope outside of any of that. You can, you can do whatever you want. You can accumulate whatever you want. You can go just have a fun day. It's going to be over. You make all the money you want. You're going to leave it behind. You can build up something that stands around for a couple hundred years like a building or a pyramid. Nobody even knows how you did it. Right? Like it's over. And eventually, it all fades. And in eternity, the only hopes that mattered were the ones that were connected to Jesus Christ. There's one God of hope, and he gives hope in abounding measure through the power of the Holy Spirit. When you look for hope in him, that's where we find hope. He says, I want you to have it in joy and peace. These believers were going through real difficulties. But, but the point is, a Christian can speak into the real difficulties. We don't have to deny them. We don't have to pretend that they're not there. It's in the middle of all those things we can still have hope in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ offers hope no matter where I am. If I'm a person who's young, who's looking at the world this crazy, there's hope in Jesus Christ. If I'm a person who's older, who's looking at stepping out of this life, there's hope in Jesus Christ. If I get news that I didn't expect, there's hope in Jesus Christ. If something comes into my life 
that I was not thinking would be part of the plan, this hope in Jesus Christ. In the world, there might be no answer. Or there might be some answer that you think is the answer that really isn't. Or there might be something that helps you for a little, but eventually it fades. There is no hope outside of the God of hope. And he's the only one who can fill you with all joy and peace in believing. If you believe what he says, what he's written, what's in the scriptures, you will find hope. He can fill you with peace in regards to those things. He can fill you with joy. As simple children, if we just believe his word, what he says. And if you look anywhere else, you're going to get frustrated. If you hope for hope anywhere else, you're going to get frustrated. You won't actually have peace. But if you hope to find those things in him, then he will give you that reality through his Holy Spirit in a supernatural way. That's what he promises. That's what Paul wants these believers to understand. That's why he wants them to receive one another and to know that they're received of the Lord. Now, 14, Paul says, I myself am confident concerning you, my brethren, that you also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able also to admonish one another. Nevertheless, I have written more boldly to you on some points as reminding you because of the grace given to me by God that I might be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So Paul has really kind of concluded the teaching aspect of the book. And now he's going to finish with a few personal notes. And these are still here. The Holy Spirit's inspired them for our learning. But Paul doesn't want these Roman believers in 14. He says, look, I don't want you to misunderstand why I'm writing to you. I was very bold. I, I said some very forward things here in this epistle. And some of them might be, you know, especially those who maybe don't know Paul. Like, why is he saying this stuff to us? And what Paul wants them to understand is, I know there's mature believers in that fellowship. I know the things I'm saying to you. It's not that people don't understand them. I know there's people in that fellowship that can admonish one another. I understand that. He's not just flattering them. He's acknowledging that. But what he says is, the reason that I wrote the way that I did is because it's his duty before God, according to the grace given to him, to address the central things of the gospel, specifically relating to the Gentile church. Paul was, in a very unique way, given to the church, particularly the Gentile church, in a similar way that Moses was given in the Old Testament, to lead that group of people into a new kind of era in which God was working. And Paul was given as a unique servant who gave of his, his life very much like Jesus Christ, suffered, poured out his strength to suffer to establish and to build up and to edify the Gentile church, particularly. And Paul says, look, this is part of what God has given me to do. That's why I'm writing to you boldly. And he uses this beautiful language in verse 16 of worship where he talks about himself as a ministering priest 
serving up the gospel of God and offering up the fruit of the Gentile believers as an offering back to God. It's, it's a remarkable thing. He's saying, look, this is where the Lord has me. And I'm, I'm writing to you boldly because this is what I'm called to do. I, I, I know that there are people there who, who are also learned and mature. So don't misunderstand what I'm doing. I'm doing this in his calling and in love as the Lord has called him to. Therefore, verse 17, I have reason to glory in Christ Jesus and the things which pertain to God. For I will not dare speak of any of those things which Christ has not accomplished through me in word and deed to make the Gentiles obedient in mighty signs and wonders by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem round about Illyricum, I forget how to say that, I have fully preached the gospel of God, and so have made it my aim to preach the gospel not where Christ was named, lest I should build on another man's foundation, but as it is written, to whom he was not announced they shall see, and those who have not heard shall understand. Illyricum. Yes, there we go. Got it. So the, it's actually a pretty word. The, the point here that Paul wants to make is, hey, look, I'm not, like, I, I don't want to, I'm not trying to puff myself up. What I'm trying to do here is speak in a way that I can glorify Christ and what he's done. I, I don't want to talk about anything else anybody's done. I just want to talk about Jesus Christ and the things. I, I love how he says this, verse 18. It's a little view into how Paul sees ministry. The things Christ has not accomplished through me. He the way he views the ministry God has given to him, first and foremost, is that Jesus Christ was the true worker of all his words and acts that were of any worth. He's like, I, I just want to boast in what Jesus Christ is doing. I am simply an instrument. Like, Jesus Christ is the one working. And he is working through me, and I just want to talk about him. I can't talk about what he's doing in anybody else. But I can talk about what he's done in me, and I want to boast in Jesus Christ. It's not me. He, he says, not only that, there were incredible miracles. He says, 19, mighty signs and wonders by the power of the Spirit of God. So that from Jerusalem all around, that, that whole area of the Mediterranean, he, he basically is saying, this whole area of the gospel has been preached. Not that every single person had heard, but he had been to all these provinces. He had established churches. And now he's saying, I don't want to go where other people have been. I want to push the boundaries. I want to head to a place where the gospel hasn't been preached yet. Paul, in a remarkable way, was not going to boast in himself. Uh, if, if the things that happen in Paul's life, if if we had a person that was wiping their head with rags and throwing them on the ground and people were being healed by those rags, they'd all be sold for $10,000. There'd be books written. There'd be specials out. People would boast. If people just planted five churches, let alone what Paul did, they would be writing secret formulas about how to do ministry they would have all types of things out there. Paul, Paul's saying there's no special sauce. 
Here's what it is. Christ is working through me by the power of the Holy Spirit. He didn't make any of those things happen. This wasn't Paul's idea. God, I was thinking, maybe you can bless these sweaty rags and they can heal people. No normal human being would think of doing it like that. That's all the power of God. It's all supernatural. And Paul's saying, I'm taking no credit in any of those things. This is Christ as the worker. And he's done this work all over this area. And I just want to now go to a, as a committed pioneer. Paul, Paul was a frontline soldier. God has called me to do this work, to go lay a foundation, not build on another man's foundation, he says. Paul said, I laid the foundation, which is Jesus Christ. This was his particular call. It wasn't that everybody was supposed to do this. That was what he was called to do. And in a beautiful way, he didn't then micromanage the work of God. Paul established churches all over, and then he sent other people. I'll lay the foundation other men can build. I'll plant, others can water. I laid the foundation, Apollos built on it. He sent Timothy. He sent Silas. He sent Titus. He would allow Apollos to go back and Corinth. He, he sent these other guys, go. The church is there. It started. It needs help. Help direct it. Help build it up. When he traveled through areas, he loved to minister the word and build up those believers. But he always had this goal of, yeah, but there's this place where there's no foundation out there. And he said, I've, I've kind of laid, I've fully preached the gospel of Christ. I've all around this Mediterranean area. I have preached the gospel, and now I, I want to head to a new foundation. And again, even in the scripture, he sees this. He quotes from Isaiah, but to whom he was not announced, they shall see, and those who have not heard shall understand. Paul, I think, is, is literally seeing, again, his ministry as a prophetic fulfillment, like John the Baptist had a ministry that was a prophetic fulfillment. Paul understands, God, you've called me to this. And, and he still calls different people to these things. There, there are people that are pioneers still today that are going into areas where there's no foundation laid. And there are people who, where a foundation is laid, are building upon that. And God has different calls for different individuals. But he is happy to cross into those boundaries where nobody has been sent at this point. He sees that as part of his ministry, and he's willing to go and to be used of the Lord. So he's going to speak about that, verse 22. It's because of this, this reason, because I've just been doing the work of Christ as he led me, preaching the gospel in this area where there were still foundations that need to be laid, that I have also been much hindered from coming to you. He already knew there was a church there in Rome, and he kept looking and seeing there's not any foundations in other places. So he said, I've been much hindered from coming to you, but now no longer having a place in these parts and having a great desire these many years to come to you, whenever I journey to Spain, I shall come to you. For I hope to see you on my journey and to be helped by you on my way there, if I first may enjoy your company for a while. So he basically shares his heart. Hey, I haven't been able to make it to Rome. I'd love to be there. I am planning to travel to Spain. He gives him the general plan. And I want to come by Rome, meet you believers there. On my way to Spain was the new territory. No foundations in Spain. That's the new front line. I want to get out there. That's what's on my heart. 
And he's saying, now my plan is to come to you guys along the way. I, I love what he says uh, at the end of 24 there. If first I may enjoy your company for a while, that I may be helped by you on the way. Certainly they could be a base for him. He would probably find other believers that would help join him. Certainly he would be helped, uh, I'm sure, financially and Certainly, they would probably give him some hints and where to go or how to travel. But he also says, I want to get my fill of your company and Christian fellowship. I think one thing that's understated about Paul is how much he truly loved Christian fellowship. I think it just blessed his heart, particularly to see Jews and Gentiles fellowshipping in the Lord with one mind, one mouth. And at the end of this letter, and at the end of so many letters, you just hear him roll off names of believers. This person, this person, this person, this person, beloved, fellow worker, just, just speaking about the blessing he had in the body of Christ. I think he loved and treasured that edifying fellowship that he found when he met with other Christians who had that same one heart, one mind, one desire to please and glorify God. It was what Paul was about, for me to live as Christ, to die as gain. And when he found anybody whose life was Christ, he's like, I want to get my fill of your company. I want to be there. I want to be blessed, see another group of believers. It's always a blessing. I've had the privilege to travel some places around the world, Mexico or Africa or different places, and you see a group of believers worshiping, serving him. And you feel like you're at home in some ways. And I think Paul was just blessed to find that. And he truly wanted to enjoy that Christian fellowship with them. He said, this is my heart. For, or excuse me, 25, he says, but now he's got one thing to do first. I'm going to Jerusalem to minister to the saints. For it pleased those in Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor among the saints who are in Jerusalem. And it pleased them indeed, and they are their debtors. For if the Gentiles have been partakers of their spiritual things, their duty is also to minister to them in material things. Therefore, when I have performed this and have sealed to them this fruit, I shall go by way of you to Spain. But I know that when I come to you, I shall come in the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Christ. Paul says, I got one task first. I'm bringing an offering. The Gentile churches had given an offering, and Paul had gone around and collected it, and they were bringing it back to the poor of the saints in Jerusalem. There was a famine there. Certainly a lot of them had given away their, most of their possessions early on. And Paul had this awesome thing happen where the Gentiles heard those things and wanted to give back to this Jerusalem Jewish church, for the most part, mainly Jews. And he, I think, was delighted he says it's going to seal the fruit of them. I, I don't know if this ever happened in Israel's history. I didn't think about it too much. But Gentile nations were sending a gift in gratitude back to the Israelites in the name of their own God. And I think for Paul, he was saying, this is a seal of the fruit of God. Like, I'm, I have this gift. This is he loved God's people. I, I think it was going to be not only something that would help build those relations, but a proof that what God is doing out there in the world is real. 
And he was excited to have this gift and to bring it back. And he was looking forward to that. And he says, it's not only just a gift, there's also gratitude there. These other uh, Gentile nations realize that they've been a partaker of the spiritual things that the Jews have, God used the Jews to carry through history and now to bring to them. Again, Paul was a Jew, bringing this truth to them. So there's, there's a great gratitude in return of the spiritual things that they had. And Paul is excited about this. And sadly, we know, he says, I want to come by way of you to Spain at the end. Paul does get there, although it's not quite the way he imagined. He arrives some years later as a prisoner. We just went through Acts. You probably remember many of those things. Um, but I think it's unique, you know, God sometimes hides things in our heart that might not come to fruition exactly when we think. But Ken's still down the line. And even when it doesn't happen exactly the way we might have hoped, it doesn't mean it's not from the Lord anymore. Paul was willing to see that even when he got there, it was the Lord. And he ends up there as a prisoner. But that never changed Paul's purposes. Our plans in life, we have to hold very loosely. You have to have some kind of plan in life. You can't just live think life. It's a real life, so you have to actually do something. You can't just think about doing things. So you've got to have some type of plan in life, but you've got to be able to allow God to change the plan. But no matter what the change in plan was, Paul's purpose never changed. His purpose was to glorify God, to please him, and to share the gospel. So if it takes a little longer, I'll please God, share the gospel, glorify him in a different way. I didn't think I'd be shipwrecked on an island or get bitten by venomous snakes, but I'll please God in those arenas. He, his, his plan shifted a little bit, but his purpose never had to change. And as believers, our plans shift, but our purpose never shifts. It's always the same. And Paul, it was going to change a little bit. But one thing he did know, I love verse 29. He didn't, he didn't know how it was all going to work out. He says, but I know that when I come to you, I shall come in the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Christ. That's a pretty wonderful thing. He said, when I arrive, I know I'll come with one blessing, the fullness of the gospel of Christ. Paul always made Christ central because Christ was the best thing. It was where the greatest blessings were. For 2,000 years, men have followed, studied, learned from, looked into, spoken about, written about, lived for, died for Jesus Christ. And he's still not exhausted. Neither is his fullness nor his blessings. And they filter down into every nook and cranny of life our individual lives, our marriages, our families. He's not stingy with the blessings. Paul said, one thing I know, I got the gospel. I got news, good news. It's the real news in the world, the news that hasn't changed, and that actually comes with full blessings. And it's related to Jesus Christ. When I show up, I'm going to bring that. That's what's worth having. 
and worth offering. Didn't know about those other things, but he did know about that. Now he finishes and he says, I beg you, brethren, through the Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit, that you strive together with me in prayers to God for me. Paul begs them for prayers. He knows he's heading into some difficult things. Notice he says in 31, that I may be delivered from those in Judea who do not believe. He knew he was a wanted man there. That my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. He wanted this gift to be something that would be a blessing, edifying, a profit to others. That I may come to you with joy by the will of God and may be refreshed together with you. Now the God of all peace be with you all. Amen. Paul says, look, pray for me. Strive together. That's, that's a, a word of real working. Strive together with me in prayers to God for me. Work with me here by praying for me. You can't all come, but you can pray. Again, I would just ask, please keep me, keep the other pastors here in prayer. As, as pastors, we don't stand here uh, in our own amazing spiritual strength carrying the weight of every other life. That's not how it works. We're a part of the body of Jesus Christ. And uh, I do appreciate so many of you saying you're praying for us. I know uh, not only just for me, but for the rest of the pastors. Uh, if Paul could beg, I will also beg. Prayers matter. That is why God has instituted prayer as a law in his universe, like gravity is a law in the universe. He made everything, and he gave the universe its laws, but he also made this other law called prayer, where he said, you can talk to the creator about anything. That also works in the world. Or if I could give another illustration, he created the website. He's the programmer. We're within the system, so we can't change anything. But it's not illogical for the programmer to change whatever he wants. Right? So when he walks on water, it's not a miracle, actually. He's the creator. He just reprogrammed the site. Right? It's his. So when you pray, you're praying to the programmer. You're praying to the one that can do whatever he wants with the site. That's not necessarily even miraculous. It's just logical. And what he says is, I also institute in this world this thing called prayer. I'm the maker. I'm the creator. And you can ask me whatever you want, whenever you want. And Paul knew that. And he knew that prayer matters. How it all works, why it all works. I don't know all the details. All I know is it's a real law in the world that we live in. And so Paul says, pray. I want what the creator can do, what the maker can do. Strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. Tells them what he's got going on. Be quick to pray. It matters. It matters. It makes a difference. God has established it to make a difference. And he closes saying, 33, now the God of peace be with you all. Peace, obviously, with God. He's gone through that. The peace of God is more than the absence of war. The world sees peace as the absence of war, but has no tranquility of heart. Peace is also a tranquility of heart. It's part of what God gives and it's also more than that, because it's the peace of God 
it's a presence. No God, no peace. Peace isn't just like a currency God dishes out. And you're like, I got 20 bucks a piece, but I just used it up because this day was crazy. Now I got no more peace. That's not how it works. He is the peace. And if I have him, then I have peace. And Adolf Safer in his book, The Hidden Life, said, the peace of the Christian is perfect because he has a perfect Christ. When I know I have a perfect Christ with me, then I have perfect peace. It doesn't mean that there's not things that need to be dealt with, because right in the next chapter you say, and the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. That's an interesting type of peace, right? That's still some pretty cool peace, though. Right? Because he's a person. When I have peace, I have him. That's what it means. He's the God of peace. And without him, there's no peace. Again, it's all fake. It's just the absence of war, but it's not true peace. He's the God of peace. Paul says, I want that God to be with you all. Let's stand. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the fullness of the blessing that we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We don't have a single good thing in our lives that we have ourselves to thank for. It's all from you. It's all your design. It's all your mercy. It's all your grace in our lives. And I pray, Lord, that you would just teach us who you are, what your peace is. I pray, Lord, certainly for our fellowship. Lord, I pray that we would have one mind, one mouth, one heart to love you, to please you, to glorify you. I pray that people who come in here would be encouraged, who join our fellowship, Lord that they would find strong believers who are willing to edify them and not to please themselves. And Lord, I pray that you would allow us to find all those things in you. So we just commit again ourselves to you. Thank you for your word. Allow us to persevere in it. We pray, in these, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.